Um, he's one of our elders here at City Life Church, and um, we all know him. We all love him. He's gonna he's gonna read our our scripture, and then um, he'll preach on it. What a treat you guys have! I get to do both of them. That was like a real teacher move too. Like. Um, today's reading is Matthew 5, 33 through 48. It can be found on page 893 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Again, you have heard, it, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make, cannot make even one hair white or black. And all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you or take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. For the unbearable toil of our sinful worlds, we plead for remission. For the terror of absence from our beloved, we plead for your comfort. For the scandalous presence of death in your creation, come, Holy, come in your creation. Come, Holy Spirit and heal all that is broken in our lives, in our streets, and in our world. Amen. Kids are crazy. Let me tell you that. Kids are crazy. And the more that you get them together, if you have more than one kid kind of in in proximity, they get crazier. Last week was the City Life camping trip. Um, Many of you were there. Many of you, some of you weren't. Um, This is an awesome annual getaway that I just love. We we get away from the city and we go to um, to the woods and we hang out together. And there's so many things I love about this trip. Um, One of my favorite things to do is to watch all the kids that get together and they kind of form this like like Lord of the Flies type pack and they just kind of follow, follow each other, kind of do whatever they want. Um, and it's just, it's fun to watch them play together. Um, but there are a couple moments that stood out to me. Um, if you were there, there were quite a few babies that, um, that were there on the camping trip. And there are two babies in particular that I just kind of watched and, and looked. I'm not going to name names um, to protect them and their parents. Um, but there they were. 
Through the course of, of this weekend, um, these two babies ebbed and flowed in their relationship together. At times, they were enemies. At times, they were friends. But most of the time, they were just frenemies. Um, they were just two babies trying to make it to bedtime the best way they knew how. If one baby had a cookie, the other baby would want that cookie. Even if the cookie fell on the ground, they would still want to eat it. Or if they wanted a water bottle, the other baby would want a water bottle. If they had a camping chair, the other baby would want the camping chair. They were both trying to get resources that the other baby didn't have or had. There was one time, though, when my back was turned and I heard a cry. And I turned around and there was one of the babies crying. And there was a, and probably about five feet away, there was the other baby who had just this really sinister might be the wrong word, but the smirk on their face um, as if to say, yes, I won. Um, (laughs) To watch these babies together is to watch them attempt to negotiate with each other um, and to have a relationship with each other. This is kind of a microcosm for us, right? This negotiation, um, trying to see what one person has and what you want and attempting to get that thing. This is just part of, ch- of child development, of human development, of babies attempting to negotiate each other. When I was studying for um, a, a test that I had to take uh, for teaching, um, I had to take, it was like the, the multiple subject CSET test. It was, I did not like it. Um, but there was, I had to study for PE because um, I was going to be tested on that. One of the things that I loved about kind of the PE was going through the different phases of games that you could do with kids. And one of my favorites was to just have kids run around and not hit or bump each other. Um, And that's really important for children development because you want them to learn where they end and someone else begins. That's kind of part of life, right? Negotiating where you end and someone else begins. We do this all the time. Um, Sometimes this negotiation, though, it goes haywire. We don't get what we set out to get. Um, We get shortchanged or worse. Um, What we want is entirely ignored or dismissed by the other parties. Even worse than that, maybe there becomes a power relationship and that power is disproportionate and the, ne- the negotiation is no longer equal. And there are those that do not have power and those that do have power. Power is abused and misused. And some would even say, yeah, this has happened to, to me too. Or even worse, maybe there's a system. It's not even a person, it's a system that is actively present, a, a social machine that systematically oppresses. And what was once a negotiation for development becomes something, becomes something else. And we have language that changes this relationship, the oppressor and the oppressed, the struggle, enemies. We call it injustice, inequality, inequity. And we feel it in our bones. Something just isn't right. Take a step back. Listen to kiddos on the playgrounds. They cry. They even say that's not fair. There's an inequity. History is filled with with heroes and heroines trying to right this wrong. And and we love these vengeance stories, right, where they take the law into their own hands. Um, Every comic book hero has something to prove, some inciting incident that they reflect on to push them, to guide them to right those wrongs. Um, Edmond Dante from Count Monte Cristo, this story is filled with, with vengeance of wanting to right his wrongs. Um, Javert from, from Les Mis attempting to seek justice at all costs. Or Batman 
in every single Batman movie attempting to seek justice. So my personal favorite, um, Inigo Montoyo from The Princess Diaries. Um, I came to avenge my father, prepared to die. We're always negotiating. We're always communicating, trying to, to put this back together. And when it goes south, something inside of us longs for justice. We feel it. This particular set of verses is kind of right in the middle, or almost right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The foundation of this is, is laid at the beginning of this chapter with the Beatitudes. This is the kind of type of people that are in the kingdom of God. And that's a really big phrase in Matthew, the kingdom of God, because Jesus is speaking to his audience, or the writer of Matthew is speaking to his audience. He's, he's highlighting this. This is what gospel people look like. Um, he sets the setting for, um, for this gospel. Um, then God's people are reaffirmed as salt and light. God's people are mournful. They grieve. They experience life. They're separate from the world. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus instructs his disciples on this new righteousness. What does this look like? He sets himself up as, as fulfilling the law, Bible lingo for Jesus being the right guy to, do, to put the world back to rights. Chapter 5 ends with this ethical treatment. What should we do? In the midst of this world, in the midst of the struggle that we have now, in the midst of negotiations happening or negotiations breaking, what do we do now? What is the good? And it's this kind of ethical treatment that is our focus today. But it's more than ethics. It's, it's kind of beyond that, right? Because if we just treat it as kind of ethical statements, well, then it's just going to end there, and there really isn't anything meaningful beyond that. And it's easy to kind of be swept up in these ethics of, okay, awesome, yeah, I can do these things just to be good. Yeah, I got that. Perfect. Keep your promises. Don't be vengeful. Love your enemies. Perfect. I got it. I'm done. Let's go to lunch. There's some obvious questions. What kind of promises can I break? What if I'm a mandated reporter and I can't, and I can't make promises to, to kids? What if I have to break those promises? What if this person actually like, wants me to run with them or to go on a hike with them? Do I have to do that too? <laughs> what if I'm being abused? Should I turn the other cheek then? There's really deep questions that fit inside of here that need to be answered. Today's not, I don't have answers for you today. I, don't have, I can't answer any of those today. Um, or, what, if, what if the enemy is another country, right? How does, the, how does it work with public policy? Where do I go then? And there's probably so many more other questions that we can ask entering into um, uh, Jesus' words today. But the tension is established, right? This seems really easy, but it also seems really complicated. There's a lot of questions we have about how to actually make this true. When Mark sent us the dates and the, the, the passages to preach this summer, I kind of looked at the passages. I cherry-pick as much as I can. I looked at the passages. Yeah, I can do that one. This is going to be really easy. And then I like, started doing the work. And I was like, man, this isn't easy at all. Um, but it is a classic one. So the kind of two immediate thoughts that came to mind when I was reading this and, and looking at this. My immediate thought was this. Um, I had this image of all the big players that loved their enemies, the cliches that did it so well. Um, I pictured a montage of black and white images of Martin Luther King Jr., of Gandhi, of Bonhoeffer, of Dorothy Day, of Cesar Chavez, marching together arm in arm, um, and the tune of any U2 song, just pick a U2 song. Um, I, 
I snagged some lyrics uh, for you if you want to pick that one. Um, they're marching together to a U2 song, and then a voiceover, a Gandhi, saying his infamous quote, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. And zoom out, and you see a choir of celebrities singing in pitch-perfect harmony, we are the world. <laughs> There's something shallow about that, right? There's something kind of packaged in plastic that it feels good, but it doesn't seem to have much depth. And then when I looked up to see if Gandhi actually said that quote, it turns out he didn't, so... <laughs> the, the second thought that I had was a, a memory I had from college. Um, I was in a class, or maybe like a, a small group, and we were, we were reading this passage, we were debating the pros and cons. You can just imagine where I, where I was on it. Um, and someone kind of asked the biggest cliche question that they could, they could ask. What if someone breaks into your house and tries to take all your stuff and harm, harm your women? Would you love them then? And very quickly I replied, well, don't have a bunch of stuff and don't have a bunch of women for them to take. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's many words that can be used to describe me in college, but the one that fits best would be flippant. Um, but there's something about kind of both of those thoughts that we kind of sit in, right? Where we want to argue with the text and say, well, what about this? And there's something kind of really cheap and almost too idealistic. Um, about it as well. There has to be another way. There has to be some way for us to navigate between these things. What is Jesus doing? And there's so many ways to look at these particular verses. They've been discussed and written about, analyzed, explored as an ethic. It kind of pushes past our defenses and causes us to think a little bit deeper. Kind of each section of, of these parts, though, there's this big question. If you want to follow this gospel, if you want to allow this to permeate within your life, this is what, this is the direction you should take. This is the road that you should follow. This is what it looks like. If you're pursuing a life after Jesus, this is what it looks like. Keep your promises. Don't be vengeful. Love those who don't love you. We kind of look at them. Jesus is doing something really, really unique. In verses 33 through 37, he, Jesus suggests that um, you should be true to what you say. Don't be dishonest. Awesome. Perfect. We can do that. Don't be dishonest. The next part, uh, 38 um, and on, Jesus kind of flips the script and he says, instead of taking vengeance on someone, be more creative. Kind of think about that person. Respond in a way that's going to throw them off. We'll get to that in just a sec. And then towards the end of this section, all the way up to, to verse 47, um, Jesus says, don't do the bare minimum when you're talking to someone. Don't do the bare minimum when, um, when someone hurts you. Do something else. Turn your cheek to the oppressor. Force their hand. There's kind of a, a cultural thing that's happening there where Jesus is saying, stand up to someone. Don't just fall down. Don't just be blindsided. But be honest. Stand up to them. You know that there's injustice. Stand up to injustice. And then he says, um, give more than what is required of you. Preserve a relationship. Value the person you're dealing with more than the stuff that you have. And he says, go the extra mile in order to go above and beyond what's required. Use this as an indictment of the, of the oppressor. What I think is really hard about this is kind of the end section of, of, um, of these verses, 43 through 47. Jesus flips the script a little bit. He says it's easy to love people who you love, people who sound like you, people who look like you, people who think like you, people who vote like you. It's harder, though, to love people 
who don't do and are not any of those things. He even like throws some shade out there too. He says, Every, everyone that you don't like, they do those things anyways. Do the stuff that's really hard. Step into the, that arena. Do the things that are, are meaningful. But why? Well, it's harder to love those people who you don't love, isn't it? It's harder to love people who don't think like you, who have different agendas than you. What is Jesus suggesting? I mean, either he's crazy, right? Either he's so out of whack with reality, out of whack with the world, or he's on to something. Well, the question is, who's my enemy, right? Who's the person that I'm actually supposed to love? Who's that person that is utterly opposed to me, antithetical to all the things that I believe in? For Jesus, and for Matthew's audience, that question is obvious. The Roman Empire, this big political machine that was subjugating almost everyone around the Mediterranean, this enemy is not only standing in front of them, it permeates all around them through their everyday life. But what Jesus says, it's kind of that, that word, right? The crux of that section, this word love um, that stands out to me. Um, this word is used often throughout the New Testament, this agape love, right? This sacrificial love, this thing that, that you're supposed to love dearly. So what Jesus suggests is not to, you know, to just treat your enemies like, hey, you're my buddy-buddy, but to sacrifice for them, to love them dearly. I mean, really? Come on. Really? Like... We're supposed to do that? That's rough. People don't like this. It feels wrong. One of my favorite stories about the Sermon on the Mount, this happened maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Um, Shane Claiborne, um, kind of a Christian author and, and speaker, was invited to a youth ministry conference um, as kind of one of the keynote speakers for one of the nights. And so he got up, he stood up in front of everyone, he said, today we're going to read the Sermon on the Mount. And for the entire time slotted for him to speak, instead of actually giving a message or giving a talk, he read the Sermon on the Mount, straight through. The reactions were mixed. Some people loved it, some people hated it. But it seemed really real, right? This is something that we resist. We're supposed to sacrifice for people that want to take advantage of us? Really? I mean, have you read the comments on the internet? That's really hard to do. Something else is happening. I think what Jesus is suggesting is that this, all these things guide us towards relationship. Our broken world, our inability to make negotiations with other people. He's saying this is what it means to follow the kingdom of God. This is what it means for the gospel to permeate our lives. It looks like maintaining relationships. But more than that, it looks like being human. When you constantly break promises, well, that's not what humans do. When you don't stand up to injustice, that's not what humans do. When you don't love people, that's not what humans do. Jesus suggests to repair relationships. When promises are broken, relationships are broken. When vengeance is taken, Relationships are broken. When we only love people who love us, who act like us, who look like us, relationships are broken. And then he says it. The part, the, almost the, the single verse that I, that I hate the most in this section and all of Scripture. He says, love like God loves. 
Actually, he says something else. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I hate this so much. Like, really? Like, be perfect? So much of my own journey has been seen through this filter. Just be perfect, as if it's an imperative, right? Be perfect. Be perfect. Come on, be perfect. Haven't you done it yet? Aren't you there yet? It feels like a... I don't know, it just feels wrong. And I, I fail at it all the time, right? I do break promises. I have biases and prejudices. I, I want to be vengeful because I feel like people deserve it. And sometimes it just feels really good, right? It feels good to take it out on someone. Mark Twain, in a, in a letter, he said, therein lies the defect of, of revenge. It's all in the anticipation. The thing itself is a pain, not a pleasure. At least the pain is the biggest end of itself. Vengeance feels good sometimes. So much of um, the Christian faith has been seen through this idea of, of to be perfect. Just do it already as if it's an imperative, a, a trick or a bad joke. Um, and the joke is on, is on me. What's interesting about this statement, though, is, is the verb that's being used. Um, the word that's used is, is teleos, like telescope. It has direction and, and perspective. To see something from a distance or to take aim. Um, there's kind of two connotations when you see this word um, in Greek. Um, the first one is like uh, if you're on a, on a boat and you change your heading just a little bit, a couple degrees, and it feels like you're not really changing at all, but when you see the direction, the teleos of that boat, it actually goes from a few degrees, a few inches, or a few feet or yards, to miles. Or the other connotation, teleos, is like you're taking um, a bow and arrow, and you change your aim to something else. So instead of be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, take aim like where God is taking you. Take aim. Do something else. Love be almost beyond everything that you have and take aim. In other words, it is hard to keep promises, to not want to take vengeance, to love people that are easy to love. And this is that tension again, right? of having these things, being told to do these things that are so hard and almost so ingrained in us not to do them, and yet, this is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Or change it a little bit. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to find peace. Or to enter into this Jewish story, this is what it means to find shalom. To love people that don't love you. That's really hard to do in light of the, of the um, events in Mississippi that happened last week. It's really hard to do when there seems to be a, a systematic oppression at work within our world. That's the tension. We all feel it. That's the negotiation. There's this chaos inside of us when we so desperately want to seek justice. This tension is elsewhere in, um, in the New Testament. Paul kind of hones in on this internal conflict in Romans, um, where he says, I, I do not understand what I do. This is in Romans 7. For what I, what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but as a sin living in me. For I know that Good itself does not dwell in me, that it is my, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good and cannot carry it out. For I do not do what I 
the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now I do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but a sin living in me that does it. He goes on to say in that chapter that there's something that, that flips that internal script, that chaos inside of him, that calms him. Um, and it leads him to the resurrection, this new life that comes out. But we have this internal conflict, right, that pushes us and repels us from each other. Um, I love the way that C.S. Lewis illustrates this in The Great Divorce. Um, This book is centered on people that live in hell, um, and they can travel outside of hell and go to this purgatory of some kind, and they can visit the people that they love from, from heaven. But at the beginning of the book, the book describes the residents in hell, and they all have houses, just go with him. They all have houses in hell, um, and they all have these, these occupancies. Um, and the newest ones, the people that are, are newest in hell, they're in the center. But very quickly, they find um, they grow tired of each other, frustrated, angry. They war with each other. And the best solution they have is to move further and further away from the center. And so the outer concentric circles um, of hell in this book are the people that have been there the longest. Now, they could very easily just turn around and say, okay, fine, you're, you're literally my neighbor. You see what he's doing there? You're my neighbor, and they would be in relationship, but they don't. They're left to their own devices. They're isolated, and they're alone. Be human. Don't let your hearts be hardened. When we kind of take that posture, not only are, are we not aiming towards that gospel living, but our hearts are hardened. Be human. Part of what God is doing is putting the worlds back together again. He's helping us aim in the right direction, aim in the right relationships. It takes habits. It takes training. I think this is why people love books like this, like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, is because we want to develop those habits. And actually, that word virtue that's kind of thrown around is this, this um, the Latin word for it is like muscle building, practicing and training to get to that point of being human which is kind of cool, right? Every time that we do this or we fail at it, we're practicing being human. This isn't new, though. Aristotle focused on the beginning of this in his book on ethics. Um, He says every art and every inquiry and every action and pursuit is a thought to aim at some good. And for this reason, the good has rightly declared to that which all things aim. He asked this question in the very beginning of, of his book on ethics. He says, what is your end goal? What are you aiming for? What are you striving for? Aiming to be human? Aiming to seek vengeance? To get what you think is yours? I don't have 12 rules for life to help this make any any more sense. I don't know how this um, helps kind of in the everyday or or public policy or for Republicans or Democrats. And um, I don't know how this helps because there isn't anything specific I could think of of like, this is what you should do today or tomorrow or next week. Um, But I I do have this. You might be thinking to yourself, okay, this is awesome, but it has limitations, right? I don't want to love those people. How are we supposed to love those people? Turn the other cheek when this thing happens or when um, people are just terrible on the internet or when people decide to almost senselessly kill innocent people. I don't have answers for that. Um, And that's where it gets really tense. We long in our hearts for that justice. Um... Recently, um, 
Brene Brown uh, released a, a talk on, on Netflix kind of doing her, her thing that, that she does. That isn't to belittle what she does because she does so, so many good things. And I, only, I can only watch a little bit of Brene Brown before I start to cry. Um, <laughs> but she has this quote that she often kind of throws out all the time. Um, it's from Teddy Roosevelt. Um, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The critic belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again, and because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does not actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. When we aim for something, when we decide to take that gospel living in our lives, we're going to fail. It's going to happen. There's going to be people that just rub us the wrong way. You're going to break your promises. You are going to fail. But when you are at the bottom of that arena, when you fail, you feel broken and dirtied and bloodied, stop. Take a look around. People that are doing this work, they have failed with you. They're there. They're trying to live this gospel life as well. They're doing the work. They're aiming towards shalom. The Christian life isn't about um, be perfect. Just do it already. It's not about that. It's never, it has never been about that. It's about changing your direction, your trajectory, aiming towards the kingdom of God, knowing that you'll miss the mark and accepting the grace that that's okay. It's a tension. It's a paradox. We run so fast and so far away thinking that we're doing the right thing, but if we just stop and turn around, we'll see that God's been there the whole time. I think there's a story about that. What's your aim? What's your goal? What's your trajectory? Where are you going? What is it going to look like to love those people who don't sound like you, think like you, or vote like you? Pray with me. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. For the unbearable toil of our sinful world, we plead for remission. For the terror of absence from our beloved, we plead for your comfort. For the scandalous presence of death in your creation. Come, Holy Spirit, and heal all that is broken in our lives, in our streets, and in our world. Amen.